Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through this part of the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray just now that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds to see the truth that lies before us in your word. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Dave asked me if I would give him a lift home, and because Dave didn't drive, then of course I said yes. And as I turned the corner onto Dave's street for the first time, I was completely blown away by the view. Dave lived in Bangor West, and as you turned on to where his apartment was, his apartment was here, and then he had an unrestricted view of Belfast Lock. And at that moment when I dropped him home, the sun was setting and the, the sky was painted with pinks and purples and the beams of the sun were coming through the clouds and they were reflecting on the water. It was absolutely glorious. The heavens were declaring the glory of God. And in complete awe of the spectacle, I said, oh my goodness, Dave, what an incredible view you have here. To which Dave replied, I wouldn't know. I've never seen it. You see, the reason that Dave didn't drive is because Dave couldn't see. Dave was a man who had been blind from birth. He'd never seen this light show that happened on his doorstep every night. He'd never seen the 50 shades of green that we have in this island. He'd never seen a smile on the face of a child. He'd never seen his mother's own face. Dave was a man who'd been born blind. And as we come into John chapter 9, Jesus, he's walking along and, and he sees a man begging. For us, very often, when we see someone begging, we, we keep our eyes straight ahead or we look at our phone, but not Jesus. Jesus saw the man and he, he looked at him, verse 1 tells us. He saw him. He saw a situation. He understood what life was like for this man. And as Jesus sets his gaze on the man, Jesus' disciples have, well, I think some pretty insensitive questions that they ask him. They were real questions. They were questions about the man's suffering. But to ask these with an earshot of the man, I think it's pretty rude. But let's have a look at the text and see what they say to Jesus. They turn to Jesus and then look at verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Hey Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned in the womb? Did he sin before he was born? Is that why he's born blind? Is this a punishment for his sin? Or was it his parents? Did they sin and this is a punishment for them? The disciples in their mind, this was the only reason that they could think of why this man might possibly be born blind. At this time it was believed that, that whenever someone suffered something like this, it was a punishment from God for sin. I think it's mainly just a cause of Adam's sin. It wasn't this man's sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. The reason why anyone suffers in such a way as this is because we live in a broken and fallen world because of Adam's sin. But that's not how Jesus answers, is it? Jesus doesn't explain why this man had been born blind. Instead, Jesus moves to the purpose of it, to the reason of it. He doesn't dwell on the cause of this man's blindness, but he turns it and he says to the disciples, listen, let me tell you the purpose of this man's blindness. Again, have a look at the passage with me. Look at verse three. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God 
might be displayed in his life. The reason why this man was born blind was for this moment. Because right here and right now, God is going to do something absolutely spectacular in his life. He was born blind for this purpose. And then having said this, Jesus then makes a claim about himself. And he calls himself the light of the world. Have a look at verse 5. In verse 5 he says, as long, verse four, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But then look what he says in verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. God's going to do something credible, he says. And then he says, and just so you know, I'm the light of the world. Now, we might scratch our heads and say, what does this mean? What is Jesus getting at when he says this? The light of the world, the word light in the Jewish religion, in the Bible, it has layers and layers and layers of meaning. But in the context, just before John chapter 9, we're in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus has been teaching in the temple and it's during a, a festival called the Festival of Tabernacles, or if it was Northern Ireland, the Festival of Tents. And during this festival, people would go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and they'd set up shelters or booths or tents, and they'd live in the tents for the week. And this was a celebration to remind people of God's goodness to the people when they were in the wilderness. Do you remember in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus? And God is with the people and he, he looks after them and he protects them and he provides for them. That's what they're celebrating during this festival. And then during this festival, there is one part of it which celebrates that God was present in the fire in the wilderness. Do you remember the fire? The pillar of fire would guide them at night. And in the book of Exodus, it says that God's presence was in the fire. It was in this light. And so to celebrate that and to remember that, let me read to you what happened. During the festival of tabernacles, there was a great ceremony called the illumination of the temple, which involved the lighting of four golden oil-fed lamps in the court of the women. So these lamps were huge candelabras, 75 feet high. They were lit in the temple at night to remind people of God's presence in the pillar of fire that guided Israel in their wilderness journey. So as part of the celebrations, these, there's these huge, massive lights. They're huge. They're massive, 75 feet high. They're blazing with light. They're to remind people of God's presence in the world. And as all this is the background, in John 8, Jesus says, while teaching, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Do you see what Jesus is claiming? He's saying, I'm just like the pillar of fire. I am God's presence in the world right now. Everyone's scratching their heads, wondering who I am. I am the very presence of God in the world. And then here in John chapter 9, he shows it. Like I was saying with the kids earlier, Jesus did things to show that he was God. And here, what does he do? He opens the blind man's eyes. I want you to imagine that you're the blind man. And you're sitting there outside the temple. And you hear some people asking their rabbi, who sinned, this man or, or his parents? You hear that awful question. You feel uncomfortable by it. And you're going to flip a coin in your mind. I wonder what the rabbi will say. Some say it's because of my sin. Some say it's because of my parents' sin. But this rabbi says something you've never heard before. He says, neither. That's a new one. You, you've never heard that before. 
And then you hear this rabbi said that the reason why you were born blind is because God wants to do something incredible in your life. And you're thinking to yourself, what? I've never heard that before. And then you hear that same rabbi say, I'm the light of the world. This rabbi is claiming to be God in, in the flesh on earth. And then you hear the footsteps coming closer. And then you hear something gross. Spitting on the ground. Then you hear rubbing with hands. Being blind, your hearing is so astute. And then the next thing, you're, you're getting something gross smeared on your face, all over your eyes, this mud. But then you hear the rabbi's voice, and he says, go, go and wash in the, in the pool of Siloam. You've nothing to lose, do you? Maybe the amazing thing that's going to happen is maybe this, this rabbi who's claiming to be God, maybe he's actually going to be able to make you see. So you get up and you fumble your way down to the pool of Siloam and you, you get in the pool. Now it's the moment of truth. Get the water in you. Suddenly you're, you're brave enough to open your eyes. <laughs> and you can see. You can see people and you can see trees and you can see buildings and you can see your reflection in the water. You can see your hands. You can see for the first time this man who was blind, who no one could help, who no one's eyes could open. Jesus opened his eyes. I reckon he ran home that day. He ran home because he could. He could run home without falling over, without tripping up. You can imagine him bursting through the door, can't you? Mom, Dad, look! No cane! I can see, I can see. You can imagine the tears of joy down his face. You can imagine the tears of joy on its mother's day on his mother's face, can't you? Oh, my son, how did this happen? Jesus opened this blind man's eyes. And his life would never, ever, ever be the same. Jesus proves to this man and to everyone else that he's the God-man by opening his eyes. But that day, it wasn't just the man's physical eyes that were open. It was his spiritual eyes. You see, that same day, this man came to see who Jesus really was. It wasn't just that he came to see physically, but he came to see spiritually. And again, we, we see this. I don't know if you've ever been up when the sun comes up. But if you have, it, it's dark, it's pitch black, you can't see a thing. And then the sun starts to creep up and you can see a little bit more clearly. And then it raises a little bit more and you can see a lot more clearly. And then eventually, whenever the sun comes right up, you can see crystal clear. Well, that's kind of like what happens with this man in terms of seeing Jesus. If you have a look with me at the passage, you're going to see this just kind of happen as he goes on. So, so the first thing that happens was that the man goes back home, and in verse 11, his neighbors are asking him all the questions. And they ask him, how did this happen? If you have a look at verse 11, you'll see there that he calls Jesus a man. Verse 11, when his neighbors ask him how he's been healed, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. The man called Jesus did this, he says at the start. Then he's taken in and he's questioned by the Pharisees. They don't like any of this stuff at all that's happened. 
And eventually they turn to the man and says, well, who do you say he is? And then look at verse 17. The man says he's a prophet. He's definitely a messenger from God. He's someone who, who holds God's message and, and gives God's message. He's a prophet. He's a messenger. And then in verse 31 to 33, we see it expand a bit more. Again, the Pharisees bring him in for a second questioning. And then he's getting really annoyed at this stage. And look what he says about Jesus. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the eye, opening the eyes of a man born blind. And then verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man has come from God. He, he's not just a man who speaks God's message, but he's, he's come from God, the blind man says. And then in verse 35 onwards, we see this man seeing crystal clearly. He sees that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Lord. Let's pick it up in verse 35. Have a look with me what happens there. So he's been questioned by the Pharisees the second time. He's been kicked out of the synagogue. And then look what happens. It's beautiful. Jesus comes to him. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, isn't that lovely? Jesus went to find him. He heard this had happened. And Jesus went to him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, it is he who's speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I don't know if you've ever picked it up in the New Testament, but the title that Jesus uses for himself, more often than any other title in the Bible, is the Son of Man. And sometimes, as Christians, we can kind of think that's Jesus referring to his humanity. He's trying to tell people that, yes, he's, he's fully human as well as being fully God. But this title, Son of Man, it's actually a title Jesus is using to describe his divinity. To let people know that he is not just a man, but he is the Son of Man, that he is this divine being. And we know that because of a vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. It was a long time ago, but we did travel through Daniel. And in the second half of Daniel, we, we had these very strange visions that Daniel had. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 7, there was a vision of one like a son of man. He was a heavenly creature. He was a heavenly being, a heavenly man. And he rode on the clouds, something that only God does in the Bible. And he approaches the Ancient of Days. And he's given all authority to judge the nations. He's given divine authority to be the judge of the universe. He's given divine authority over all things. That vision, it's one who looks like a man, who, who is human in his outlook, but also is divine. And when Jesus says to this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe I'm him? He's saying, do you believe I'm the God-man? Do you believe I am the one whom one day everyone will buy, who one day I will judge everyone? Do you believe that I'm that one from Daniel chapter 7. And the man says, I do. And the other reason we know why this is a divine statement is because look what the man does. He worships him. He worships Jesus and Jesus doesn't stop him. Only God is to be worshipped. And here the man bows and he worships the Lord. This man was given spiritual sight as well as physical sight. 
And I just want to say to you this morning, if you're here and you see who Jesus is, this morning if you're here and you see him as the Savior and you see him as the King and you see him as the Lord, give him thanks because he's opened your eyes to see that. You can't see that without the Lord opening your eyes, so give him thanks for that. And likewise, if you're here this morning and you've got friends and family and it's like they're blind, they just don't see anything of this in Jesus, then pray and ask the Lord to open their eyes. The man received his spiritual sight that day. But there were others in this story, others in this encounter, who remained blind. Um, I think it's absolutely genius. Uh, my background's marketing, so anything to do with advertising, I love it. Uh, and I love that um, referees, a lot of them are now sponsored by Specsavers. Have you noticed that? Uh, I think it's genius because the referees, they miss what is really obvious to everybody else, don't they, sometimes? Um, I, I like going to watch the football, and you know, sometimes people shout out, are you blind, referee? But my favorite one is whenever someone shouts out, are your eyes painted on, referee? That's my, my personal favorite. But it's ironic, isn't it? Here's these people, these referees, who should be able to see and yet don't seem to be able to see. Sometimes you wonder, don't you? Do they see and just pretend they don't? Do they see and, and just turn a blind eye? Well, as we go through this story, there are, are three groups of people who remain blind. The first group are the man's neighbors. And it seems to me that they're blinded by skepticism. The man runs home. The man goes in and, and speaks to his parents. And he goes out into his neighborhood. And what happens? Well, some of his neighbors just don't believe it. They don't believe what their eyes are telling them. They refuse to believe what the man's saying to them. They just have question after question after question. They're skeptical. They can see clearly, but their skepticism, it's like it's building a wall that they can't see through. You see it in verse 8. His neighbors, and those who, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit outside and beg? Some claimed that he was, but look, others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself stated, I am the man. They were skeptical. What is skepticism? Skepticism is an attitude of doubt. And my guess is that as you sit here this morning, you know, maybe you're a very skeptical person. Maybe it's like doubt is just part of your DNA, like a lot of doubt is just part of you. Now, I want to say on one hand, it's good to be skeptical. It's good to doubt things. Um, you know, whenever you get that phone call on your landline and they're wanting you to transfer money for something and you're thinking, what's this all about? It's skepticism saves us from that. There is a, it's good to be skeptical. It's good to have a healthy amount of skepticism. It's also good to be skeptical when we come to the Bible. It's good to ask questions and, and to learn and to find out answers for things. It's good to know why we believe what we believe. So skepticism in itself is not a problem. But we can become so skeptical. We can make skepticism our default position. We can become unhealthily skepticism in our lives. An unhealthy skeptic will doubt whether her husband loves her, even though they've been married for 40 years. An unhealthy skeptic doesn't trust anything they see on the news. It's all lies. It's all rubbish. You can't trust anything the media tell you. 
An unhealthy skeptic doesn't believe one word the government say. It's all a conspiracy. An unhealthy skeptic refuses to believe anything the doctor says about how they are or their health. Do you see what unhealthy skepticism looks like? An unhealthy skepticism, I think, can blind people from seeing Jesus. They just pile up question and question and doubt and doubt on top of one another that it's like a wall in front of them that stops them seeing Jesus. And I want to say this morning, if that's you, if you're here this morning and maybe you're just so skeptical about all this Christianity stuff, maybe you've just got loads of questions and and what you're doing is you're just letting them pile up and pile up and pile up, I want to ask you to do something and that's to stop piling them up and to go and get some answers. I don't know if you ever watched the X-Files back in the day, but the tagline was, the truth is out there. And I want to say, if you're here this morning and you're skeptical and you've got all these questions, go and find the answers. There's answers out there. Books and podcasts and sermons and lectures. Don't let skepticism blind you from putting your faith in Jesus. Anyway, to be fair to the neighbors, they go and they do try to find answers. So they go to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious people of the day. They're the people who who know God's word. They're the people, the Bible experts. So they go to the Pharisees. But when they go to the Pharisees, we find out that the Pharisees are also blind to Jesus. And what makes them blind to me, it looks like it's their self-righteousness. And there are some people, and I'm sure it's none of you here, but there are some people who always find a problem with something. Do you know any of those people? You know, those people who go to their hairdressers and they get their hair cut and it's just not quite right. Those people and they go out for a meal and whatever they've ordered, it's just not quite cooked well enough. Do you know those people? Well, the Pharisees are like this with Jesus. It doesn't matter what Jesus does. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. They've always got a problem with him. And their problem with Jesus is that he doesn't match up to their level of self-righteousness. Jesus doesn't meet their standards. We see it here. So the the man is brought to the the, the Pharisees and they say to them, how how did this happen? And the man says, well, Jesus, he, 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 he made some mud out of saliva and he put it on my eyes and I went to wash and I could see. And what's the problem? The problem is that this was done on a Sabbath. And whenever you read around this, it seems that the real problem they had was that Jesus would have had a need to make the mud. You know, like kneading bread, mixing the things together. Well, to mix the saliva and the, the mud, that was kneading. And the commentators say that this was the problem. This is insane, isn't it? Jesus has shone right in front of their eyes. He's shone so brightly and shown that he's God the Son. And they say, well, we have a problem with this. He, he needed on the Saturday, on the Sunday, he needed to make this miracle happen. Jesus has not met our standards. We have certain things that we don't do on the Sabbath and needing is one of them and he did it. Do you see their self-righteousness? They had sang, hadn't they? Like we talked about earlier, that's, that's, that Psalm, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and salvation. And here is the Lord right in front of them, shining so brightly, offering them salvation. And they say, we don't need it. You're the one who needs it, Jesus. 
We're good. We're righteous. We're correct. We're morally upright. It's you, Jesus, who is in the wrong. Now, I'm sure none of us would say that to Jesus. But I wonder, are there any of us here this morning? And, and when we think about ourselves, we, we really just think we're very good people. We're religious. We, we come to church. We read our Bibles. We give to charity. We look at the world around us and we're disgusted by the moral decay in it. There's many things that we would never do that lots of people are doing. And we think of ourselves pretty highly. But that can become a problem because if we see ourselves as wonderful and good, then we don't see our need of Jesus. If we see ourselves as wonderful and good and self-righteous, we'll, we'll never see our need of a savior. Friend, if that's you this morning, if you think of yourself as not needing Jesus, you're blind. We all need him. We're all sinful. We're all flawed. We all need him today. And then there's the last group of blind people. And this group are the man's parents. And what's really sad about these folks is that they're acting blind. They've seen, but they're acting blind. It's like they're turning a blind eye to Jesus. Look what happens in verse 19. They're brought to the Pharisees, and the Pharisee says, listen, is this your son? Was he born blind, and how did his eyes get open? And look what they say. They said, he is our son. He was born blind, but look what they say. How he can see, we don't know. That's a lie, isn't it? Of course they knew. Their son would have told them everything that happened. They knew what had happened. They knew that Jesus had opened his eyes. And yet they claim ignorance. We don't know. We don't, we don't know how his eyes were opened. They don't want to side with Jesus. They don't want to identify with Jesus. And we know the reason is because they're fearful. They're scared of what will happen. Look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. We're not going to side with him. We're not going to identify him. We're not going to say we see Jesus because we were scared of the repercussions. We don't like what this might mean for us. Friend, I wonder, is this you this morning? You've seen him. You've seen Jesus. You've seen him at work in your life. You've seen him at work in your other family members' lives. You've seen him at work. But you pretend you haven't because you don't want to step out in faith and trust him. You're worried about the mums at the school gate will say. You're worried about what the guys down at the pub will say. You're wondered how, worried how your school friends will treat you. You've seen him. You know you should follow him. You know you should trust him. But you say, we don't know. I don't know. I don't know who he is. If that's you this morning, I want to suggest that there's something you should fear more. Something you should fear more than what your mates think. Something you should fear more about the consequences. And the thing you should fear more is not what your friends say, but what Jesus will say on that day of judgment. That's how Jesus finishes this part of the passage. Have a look at verse 39. So the Pharisees, they overhear Jesus saying about the blind and, and seeing, and they say, are we blind too? And then look what Jesus says in verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see 
and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard this and say, are what, are we blind too? And then now look closely at verse 41. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Do you see what he says? If you couldn't see, I'd understand. But the fact that you say you can see, the fact that you say you can see who I am, but you've not trusted me, well, for that, your sin remains. For that, your guilt remains. Friends, if we've seen Jesus, the only response that makes sense is to worship him, to to bow down before him, to say, you're my Lord and my King, my Savior, and I'm gonna live for you. To do anything else is to walk in blindness. So this morning, if you've seen Jesus, thank him for opening your eyes. This morning, if your friends and family who just seem so blind, pray and ask the Lord to open their eyes because Jesus can do it. This morning, if you're letting self-righteousness blind you, oh, ask the Lord to show you your sin and your need of a savior. This morning, if you're letting skepticism blind you, go and look for the answers to your questions because the truth is out there. This morning, if you're letting fear of other people stop you from following Jesus, don't worry about what they say. Worry about what the Lord will say on that last day. And no matter who you are this morning, my hope is that you'll be able to sing what John Newton wrote. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the light of the world and that you continue to shine today. Lord Jesus, we pray for our loved ones this morning who just seem to be walking in darkness. They don't see anything of your beauty or your power. They don't see the amazing difference that you can make in their lives. They don't see their need of forgiveness or their their own sin. It's like they're blind. Oh Lord Jesus, would you open their eyes that they would see your beauty and your power and the amazing difference you can make in their lives. Lord, would you shine upon them and make them see? And Lord, for each of us, would you shine upon us even more that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more dearly, and that we would worship you wholeheartedly. Reveal more of yourself to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.